because the secular humanism itself appeals to the subjectivity of man and uh, promotes that spirit uh, that we normally say a prayer to the Holy Spirit to combat any emotional um, feelings we may have if the content uh, seems to touch on our own lives in an adverse way. Because secular humanism, I suppose, is... uh, such a dominant attitude to life today. A lot of it passes for good Christian charity, in my opinion, anyway. But, uh, so we'll just, um, I think probably um, Dr. Mara himself, this being Dr. Mara of Fordham University, might just lead us in the prayer to the Holy Ghost, and then we'll start the lecture. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and give them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Thou shalt renew the face of the earth. O God, by the light of the Holy Spirit, that you lighten the hearts of thy faithful, grant by that same Holy Spirit that you shall be truly wise in Christ our Lord. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Frank, and dear friends in Christ. The topic is a critical look at secular humanism, and it's a bit more complicated and technical than perhaps you might suspect. This secular humanism is a dominant philosophy in America and in England. I was just telling someone here, the English are ahead of the Americans in thinking. Most of the nonsense we get in America, you have it first, and it's thanks to the British Humanist Society. We are an English-speaking, the only language we know in America is English. So when we read something that makes halfway sense, we grab it. But then with our Yankee ingenuity, we act much more efficiently than you. So every kind of kooky movement in America, or most kooky movements in America, are far more efficiently organized there than here. But we owe it to our English-speaking brethren across the Atlantic for most of the bad ideas. This secular humanism is a philosophy. It pretends to be based on science, but it is a philosophy. It is the cutting edge of the whole permissive society, as I can amply document by reading a few words from their manifesto of 1973. It's enormously successful in law, government, education, medicine, the media. And yet it always pretends to have nothing... Uh, on its agenda except the humane living together of people on planet Earth. It has all the winning features. It has the semantic features. Who would ever want to fight against humanism? It seems as if one has to be inhumane to oppose secular humanism. Now, I get my... uh, I started lecturing on this topic in earnest in 1973, because Humanist Manifesto Number 2 came out. At 40 years prior to that, in 1933, Manifesto 1 came out, signed by relatively few people, most of them philosophers. We philosophers look harmless. We never get government funding. We never wear white jackets and have smoking instruments which seem to blow up the world. But it is philosophical ideas which create social and intellectual revolutions. 
and the Humanist Manifesto of 1917 was a manifesto of atheists. Now, most manif there are manifestos is issued every year. Everybody's got something to claim. Most manifestos have nothing to say, and they die out. But alas, some of them become historically viable. One only thinks of the Communist Manifesto. It was written and signed by a few uh, rugged-looking bums, and yet it dominates history for 70 years, the Communist Manifesto, and we have still not seen the end of this evil ideology. Well, the Humanist Manifesto of 1917 boldly proclaimed that now that science has advanced so much and now that democracy has advanced so much, we have to get rid of superstitions, and we have to boldly move ahead into the bright new world. And then came World War I and World War II and Nazism and Communism and all kinds of problems. So 40 years later, the survivors of Humanist Manifesto I, mostly American and British, mostly philosophers, but we had a couple of biologists thrown in, they put together Manifesto II, and it is a reaffirmation of atheism, of scientism, of everything else, but it's a bit moderated now. They admit that they might have been a, been a bit too optimistic uh, 40 years ago when they predicted this brave new world because things have not quite uh, turned out the way they thought. And if we ever have Manifesto Three, they're going to have to get still more embarrassed because the more they predict, and the more they agitate for their death-dealing philosophy, the worse things get. And of course, most people think the answer is more of the same. And this is the mischief that these people have sown. If you ask me to sum up the humanist position, I know the name sounds good, but they are devils behind the name. You could call it the credo of the Antichrist. Take any statement that we Catholics will hold as true about God, man, religion, immortality, ethics, society, contradict that statement, and you have humanism. So it's not at all innocent. It's not at all some theoretical movement for strange, eccentric people who dabble in it. It is a program based upon a philosophy alleged to be defended by science for a revolutionary interpretation of life and law and family and medicine and everything else. Now, there are four aspects which one might treat of in treating of humanism, and I shall confine myself to the two most difficult ones. The other two are rather obvious if you read them. The first aspect is epistemological. This whole question of epistemology, I say, is at the heart of philosophy, and epistemology means this question of knowing. What do you mean when you say you know something? What do you mean when you say something is certain? How come, what kinds of knowing are there? Is the science of psychology, for example, a sufficient basis for ethics? Is the science of psychology competent to answer the question whether we have an immortal soul? This, these are questions of epistemology, this whole problem of knowing. It is the problem that has destroyed Western thought for 200 years at least, since 
the German philosopher Kant, it's the problem almost no one wrestles with because it's very difficult. In England, the number one pseudo-epistemologist was Bertrand Russell, for which England will put an extra hundred years in purgatory for having given us this man. He hated the American humanist to his credit. He ridiculed John Dewey. He ridiculed the American pragmatist. But he was almost exactly in their camp in the atheism, materialism, relativism, skepticism, which is the heart. So the first point I'm going to discuss is about the most difficult point, but I hope to make it uh, intelligible, will be this epistemological question of the foundations of scientific secular humanism. It's going to deal with these American names. We have a homegrown philosophy, which I'm embarrassed to name. It's called pragmatism, instrumentalism, and in general, though, we share with you English, scientism. This whole unfounded glorification of science as the only fountain of truth and certainty and knowledge. Scientism. And it's running wild not only in humanistic concern, but above all in evolution. The second point is metaphysical, dealing with God versus nature. We Americans have trumped up this metaphysic called naturalism, but we did not invent that. It has, it's as old as the human race, perhaps. The most famous practitioner of it was Spinoza, who was an atheist. Whenever you, whenever you say nature is everything, you're a pantheist, which means you're an atheist, which means you're a naturalist. Spinoza was the most important one. But in the last 50 years, all the Oriental religions, above all Hinduism, Buddhism, they are religions, but their basic metaphysic is naturalism. This, this, this idea that there is no transcendent personal God. So my two real points will be epistemology and metaphysics, neither of which is simple, but I hope to simplify them as far as it's consistent with accuracy. There are two other points which are much more immediate, namely their ethical position, which is typical situation ethics. If you want to know what humanism is in action, Look at the textbooks your children are reading, even in Catholic schools. Look at this wretched uh, dialogue going on. Well, if you like something, it's good for you. And nothing is ever totally right or totally wrong. It depends on situations and it depends on the consequences. Well, this is vintage humanism. And I'll read a few deplorable statements from their manifesto. And finally, their social philosophy, this is point number four, three is ethics, four is social philosophy. I'm going to skip three and four, but I briefly mentioned them here. Their social philosophy was unabashedly socialism in 1933. They thought the whole problem of economics and politics could be solved by these wondrous experiments of this, of this state of the future, the, the socialist state, the Soviet Union. Today, they'd be a bit embarrassed and bashful. And, of course, one-worldism, the hope of the world, as I hope you know, is the United Nations. God help us. I mean, if that's the hope of the world, we're hopeless. 
But these people, they have this naive faith in democracy, the people, institutions, dialogue, the United Nations, and so on. Now, when you add up these four doctrines, you get a radically different worldview, which is absolutely incompatible with Christianity. We have a few naive people, more than a few, usually religious orders people, nuns and priests, usually Jesuits and Marinal priests in America. I don't know what version you have here. And they, they are the ones who think that we're irrelevant. The church has nothing to say to the modern world until the church adopts naturalism, situationism, uh, humanism, and so on. They think that this socialism, Marxism, this is where the church finally can make an impact on the world. And they are the grave diggers of the humane society, these naive dupes of atheistic humanism. Let's get to metaphysics now, and it's not all that complicated. Uh, I suspect that people here are just as bad off as people in America now in religion. The Catholics used to have an unabashedly clear notion of what they mean by the word God. It's not that we could define God, but we all understood that there's a world, the earth, sun, moon, stars, there are vegetables and animals on the earth. There are human beings on the earth. We believe in angelic natures created by God. We have not seen them. We believe in all sorts of natural forces that chemistry uh, and physics and biology study and astronomy study. But we would say over and above the created universe, however large it is, however mysterious it is, God exists. God is not the world. God made the world. The world is temporal, changeable. God is unchangeable, eternal. This is, the, this is the basic position of what is called theism. The Jews were the first people ever to espouse it. The Catholics, the Catholic Christians, of course, when Jesus Christ revealed his divinity to us, espoused it still clearer, because we finally understood, or we understood better, that this most mysterious personal God is tri-personal. And the earth and the sun, moon and stars and angels and the human race were still more clearly identified as creatures. Not God, not divine, not continuous with the nature of God. Something made ex nihilo, out of nothing. So this is the correct, this is the theistic position, not for the humanists, not for the people I'm thinking of, whether it's Bertrand Russell or John Dewey or Spinoza or anyone else. Their whole point is this. They will journey with me through the creation, and they are quite sensitive to the beauty of creation. They're not barbarians. In fact, the more they denounce God as superstition and dangerous, the more sensitive they seem to be to beauty, to poetry, to flowers, to love. So let's not accuse them of being barbarians, but everything is this horizontal uh, issuance from nature. There's only one thing, nature, 
And what they mean by nature is this network of forces, biological, physical, chemical, name anyone, psychological, they're willing to admit all of these things, but these forces are embedded in matter. They obey laws which science discovers, and beyond nature is nothing. No God, no eternity, no spiritual being. No power, no intelligence that called the world into existence. Nothing but silence and emptiness and a kind of icy dread. This is the metaphysics of humanism and totally contradicting Christianity. And you can see how naive are these priests and religious and secular Christians who think there can be any peace with such as the secular humanists. We are in confrontational camps. They are the naturalists, and they spell it with a capital N, meaning nature is all. No transcendence, no personal source. That's why they love evolution. Or they, they, they say, well, you see what matter is. I mean, we're, this is matter, this is matter, the earth, trees, sun, moon, stars, are all material. And they are convinced that some way or other, they're not especially sure of the exact mechanism. It's quite embarrassing, but it doesn't stop them. Some way or another, whether it's nitrogen or oxygen or hydrogen or something, by shuffling around long enough, it caused the different forms on earth, and finally it caused you and me and, and all the mysterious beauty and everything in this world. So they are evolutionists, atheists, naturalists, materialists, all of these other names mean very simply, you begin with nature here and now, you end with nature here and now. Never look above. That's superstition. That's pie in the sky. That is distracting you from the real business of learning and government and, and science, namely the good life here and now. The, we Christians obviously say the opposite. And when we say we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we believe in that because it was revealed to us. The epistle to the Hebrews says that in former times, God, the one true transcendent power, the divine personality, God spoke to the human race at first through prophets, but then through his Son, Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is a supernatural person supernatural person coming from eternity of uh, uniting himself to a created human nature thanks to the blessed virgin thanks to the holy spirit and we say that he coming down as son of god and son of mary son of man he is the great teacher of the human race he is the great ruler of the human race. He is the life of the human race and he gave us the truth, not all the truth, but sufficient truth for us to understand the mystery of life on earth and above all for us to come to the Father through him and with him and in him. And he told us among his many teachings, which are so easily summarized but never to be fathomed totally, among his many teachings are these, that our mission is to seek the glory of God first. We seek first the reign of God. Other things will be added to us. We have to flee from sin. 
There are certain behaviors which are possible to us, but which are wicked and immoral. Our mission is to be holy, not to be successful, not even necessarily to be happy. There are going to be times on earth, most of the time when we're good, we're also better off for being good. In a sense, when we conform to the moral law, this aids earthly happiness. It certainly aids prosperity. But there will be certain tragic moments or, or, or moments of crucifixion when it seems that earthly happiness is rooted in breaking a moral commandment. The typical case would be, I have an unhappy marriage with this woman, and finally a truly beloved person comes into my life who loves me. Well, if I want to be true to marriage vows, to fidelity, I cannot have union with this third party. But if I want to be, quote, happy, and there's a real sense in which I might be happy, it's at the expense of moral integrity. So Christ warns us about the inevitable crosses of following him. We are not promised instant happiness. We're not always promised any happiness. Some of the great saints will testify how lonely and joyless many hours of their life have been because they chose the narrow ray following the crucified Christ. If we're not willing to take up the cross of Christ, we're not fit to be his disciples, says Jesus Christ. So we were told to fix our hearts on eternal things because if you worry too much about your health, your home, your treasure, your career, your reputation, these things are liable to be taken from you by rust or thieves or moths. There are all kinds of forces which will steal away your earthly treasures. So Christ told us to fix our hearts on those unending treasures above. We are not to despise earthly things. We're to give them their proportionate importance. And against the background of eternity, earthly things shrink insignificant. All sorts of crosses, which for the time bound, those who think that life on earth begins in the womb and ends 50 years later in the tomb, which are insufferable, they become quite different when weighted or measured against eternity. We are told to pray to the Father in his name. That if we ask the Father anything in Christ's name, the Father will give it to us. We are told to believe that the good Father knows what we need. And if even an earthly father tries to give good things to a son, how much more will the earthly father? So what a wondrous consolation on condition that we know it is true. If we think it's pie in the sky, it is useless. But for those who have faith, what a great consolation to realize that a personal, transcendent God exists, tri-personal. His very divine Son came on earth to teach us. Our destiny is to come to the Father on earth on pilgrimage as we walk through time. We are enlightened by his truth, vivified by his divine life, and aided by his sacrament. And what, this is the courageous, triumphant vision of Christianity, which has overcome all earthly obstacles, which has a glorious tradition.
for 2,000 years on earth. This is Christian, God-centered religion, and from Christian faith has come an authentic Christian humanist. The civilization, to the extent that they are Christian, the more Christian they are, the more humane they are. The more women are respected. The more beauty is encouraged. The more leisure is encouraged as against this vicious slavery of endless work and grim uh, uh, workaholism. Christianity allowed us to sing. Christianity brought music and beauty and dignity to the human race. So we need never apologize for Christian culture. To the extent we depart from Christ, even if we call ourselves Christian, of course we're barbarians. Of course we, we, we accept the, the rules of the pagans and the secularists. But let us not be ashamed of the great triumphs, the great humane institution beginning with orphan asylums and hospitals and schools and universities, all of them rooted in Christ, not in the Secretary of Education or some humane society that has been trumped up. Now, I want to read something from the Humanist Manifesto. This is the preface to their Manifesto of 1973, which is already 17 years old. I remember the day it came out. They're very impatient with us superstitious people. As in 1933... Humanists still believe that traditional theism, especially faith in the prayer-hearing God, assumed to love and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, as in 1933, we humanists say this is an unproved and outmoded faith. So in other words, they say, we told you 40 years ago, you people are going after pie in the sky. You still haven't learned your lesson, so let us repeat. This prayer hearing God, personal, able and willing to intercede for us on earth, superstition, distraction. You're wasting your time and your money with your incense and your novenas. Why don't you do some work in the lab and do some work maybe to solve the AIDS problem or, or, or the cool the, the warming of the atmosphere. That's going to help the human race. Don't give us this piety. So this is the bravado of the second humanist manifesto, this, uh, this prayer-hearing God which is denounced. What more pressing need, this is still from the humanist manifesto to preface, what more pressing need than to recognize in this critical age of modern science and technology that if no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. That is the end of the story. You mumbling people in your babushkas, you people going to pilgrimages, going to masses, going to novenas, talking about the Bible, talking about Jesus Christ. Well, this deity is an invention. You praying for a cure to AIDS? Get into the lab and find one. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. This is the arrogant, clenched fist of secular humanism. 
And as I say, it's not simply an ideology reserved to the academy. This is the dominant force in education and in law. I'd say 90% of American judges and lawyers and legal scholars are humanists in this exact sense. They barely conceal their contempt for religion. Oh, we're allowed, we're tolerated, I mean, just as one tolerates the snake charmers. But we're allowed no serious participation in the public forum. Now, the key to their belief, the key to their contempt for religion and the transcendent is their epistemology. And I want their theory of knowledge. And the key to their theory of knowledge is very easy to state. They simply say there are all kinds of claims about reality. Some claims are quite obvious. I can say one of those doors is open. I claim that is so, and it is so. And if you don't believe me, you need eyeglasses. But I can claim angels exist. I can claim right now there are certain dangerous cosmic rays in this room right now that will give you cancer. I can claim God exists. I can claim that my dearly beloved father, who died 20 years ago, continues to exist. Now, all of these are sentences. They're all claiming to be true. And the humanists are very skeptical. They say, how do you know? Well, I know the door is open because I see it. How do I know there are cosmic rays in this room? I don't see cosmic rays. I don't feel it. But they are confident they can build gadgets which can measure invisible energies. And so they have. I do not challenge them on that. I'll, I'll bet if we ever knew how many rays are in this room, we'd quit. We'd start running to an underground shelter. But how do you know angels exist? You build a machine that's sensitive to angel wings? How do you know God exists? How do you know abortion is evil? For that matter, how do you know a flower is beautiful? These are the tough questions. And they simply have a very simple answer. They simply say, only those statements which can be scientifically verified or falsified are worthy even of meaning, never mind certainty and truth. So they will simply say, when you make a statement about cosmic rays, that sounds like a statement about angels, but at least we can create a receiver, a kind of radio, a cosmic wave sensor, and we can predict that if we turn the machine on, the dial will go this way if rays exist, and the dial will stay put if rays don't exist like a Geiger counter, right? Well, so help me, they've been able to show that. So that's what they mean by scientific verifiability. That's what they mean by falsifiability. They make a statement, and then the scientific method predicts some new event, and if the new event really takes place, that is said to verify their hypothesis. That's the way they do it in biology, chemistry, astronomy, physics, and so on. Then they say, so far so good, I have no problem with that. I've studied enough science to respect real science. I don't respect pseudoscience. But real science I respect. But then they say, only what is scientifically verifiable is fit to be called knowledge. Every other kind of knowledge is pseudo-knowledge. Faith, of course. But even philosophy. You understand something is true, forget it. 
That's pseudo-knowledge. They want scientific experimentation and verification. And unless that exists, they say, not only is the statement not true, the statement is meaningless. This is the heart of American pragmatism. Some people think that we pragmatists, that Americans are pragmatists. They think that means we like refrigerators and cars and practical things. That is also true, but that's not what we mean by pragmatism. What we mean by pragmatism in epistemology is, to repeat, only that human endeavor is fit to be called knowledge or truth, which is subject to scientific verifiability, like the Geiger counted dial, trembling in the presence of radiation and still when there is no radiation. Now, that is the heart of American pragmatism and the American instrumentalism, your own Bertrand Russell has his own version. He calls himself a logical positivist, but it's the same way. His positivism, he's a bit more intelligent than our people. But what he means by positivism is exactly what we mean by pragmatism. Now, let's apply that to our faith. We are Christians. I assume most of us here are Catholic Christians and we have two key statements in our religion. First of all, we say God exists, and we know a little bit about what we mean by the word God. Secondly, even more audaciously, we say Christ is God. Anybody can believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed. I mean, that hard? We have 10 billion human beings. So one of them is called Jesus. Big deal. That's faith. The big problem of faith is that this Jewish boy, born of a woman named Mary and apparently of a father named Joseph, is divine, is God from God, true God from true God, light from light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was made flesh. This is our faith. So how do you know that? The logical positivist, the instrumentalist, the, the humanist will say, what are you people talking about? Yeah, God exists? Christ is God? Jesus Christ is God? How do you know that? Well, if you're not into philosophy or, or serious theology, if you're part of the common faithful, you're stunned by that question. You've never really asked yourself that question, or if you have, you quickly dismissed it. And you would simply say, well, I somehow know that the whole universe cannot explain itself, that something beyond the universe, exempt from the change of the universe, is what accounts for the universe. That's not bad. I think most of us have that kind of dim, pre-philosophical knowledge that something beyond time explains time. We don't know what it is. But, and if we had never heard scripture or preaching, we, we might assign strange names and we might speak of the great architect of the sky or whatever, but we somehow know that reality has a ground, has a cause, and that this cause is different from reality. Now, that's not bad. Secondly, if someone says, how do you know that Jesus Christ is God? Well, you don't prove that. You believe it. It has been proposed to you. The very words of Christ and the deeds of Christ and the witness of the Holy Church. 
And this whole explanation of our redemption has been given to us, and we somehow understand that this can be much more problematic. We can have crises in faith. But we hear the name Jesus Christ. We hear the name Napoleon. We hear the name uh, Albert Schweister. Very nice names. But we say of Jesus Christ, he is God. He spoke with divine authority. His deeds for which martyrs died by the hundreds of thousands in witness of. His deeds are deeds that only God could have performed. So we would say to these people who ask us for reason for our beliefs that we somehow know by reason, to a certain extent, by faith, to a much greater extent, that God exists and that this unique human, that this unique Jesus Christ, true God and true man, was God. In good times and in bad, whether we sin or cleanse from sin, we Catholic Christians have this firm belief in transcendent personal God, a tripersonal God, in redemption and in eternal life. Just say that Apostles' Creed slowly. It is the most audacious thing you'll ever say. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and life everlasting. I mean, it's an audacious claim. All around you is the decay of death. All around you, nature shows that it's totally corruptible. But you say and you mean, and I say and I mean, there is the resurrection from the dead. We say that because of faith. Now, can we scientifically prove this? No. What sort of an experiment? Are you going to try an experiment to prove that my father is alive right now? Are we going to have a seance and say, Father, if you are alive now, make this go on fire? No. I, I accept this as true on faith. There are many things I accept by reason. Not so that my father continues to exist not so that Jesus Christ is God, not so that he was born of the Virgin. Now, the secular humanists are not happy with that. They would accuse me, and above all, my grandmother and my mother who have rosary beads and wear babushkas. At least I'm a college professor. I can pose as some knowing person. The whole thing is a big pose, anyhow. But the mumbling Christians with their prayer books... They accuse us of being victims of priestcraft. They accuse us of being credulous, superstitious. And they say the only hope for you people is to be rescued from this morass of superstition and to be given scientific foundations for your whole life. So they want experimental proof. In America, we have this uh, man... He was a big entertainer in America, Steve Allen. I don't know... If he has come across. He's a sad man. He, used to, he was discovered by Arthur Godfrey about 40 years ago, who was one of the big television God idols 40 years ago. He has since passed into mortality. And Steve Allen's a pianist, uh, a kind of dramatist, a, a little bit of a comedian, but he's also a humanist philosopher. So he was on television about 20 years ago, 
And he was dead serious about this religion. So they said, Steve, uh, do you believe in anything that the Christian religion would say? Uh, For example, the key point put to him would be that a personal God exists and that prayers can be efficacious, that God really hears prayers. That's a pretty important thing. Most of us are praying for something every day. We have a whole list of requests for ourselves, our loved ones, for the world, for the church. We pray that certain evils will be averted. We pray that certain good things will happen to us. Some of us pray that we'll win the lottery. Now, Steve Allen says, well, that's a very difficult question. He says, I would believe that God exists and that God hears prayers if you could prove it scientifically. So someone said, how are you going to do that, Steve? He had a perfect uh, experimental test. He says, go to a cancer ward in some hospital and simply note, There are 30 patients on the left side of the aisle and 30 patients on the right side of the aisle. Unknown to any of these 60 patients, have a group of contemplative nuns pray for one side and not for the other. You see, you get the control group, right? And Steve Allen says, if the, let's say, so the the nuns are given instruction, pray for the left side. And it's written down and slipped under the, the turn so that nobody knows it because we don't want psychologically induced cures. And let the nuns pray for 30 days and give them whatever time they think they need. He said, if at the end of the interval, the people on the left-hand side, I don't say are all cured, but if there's a greater proportion of cures on the left than the right, well then we have this beginning of scientific proof that a God exists who hears prayers and who will answer them. Now, that sounds perfectly logical. And a lot of people say, well, that would assure me too. I even think Bertrand Russell would have been convinced by that. That's empirical proof, experimental proof. That's the kind of scientific proof we humanists want. We don't want nonsense. We don't want you people saying, oh, God, here's my prayers even if I die. No, no, we want cures. And and we don't want double talk. There was a famous... A popular atheist in America. I believe he's American, but for all I know, he's British. Robert Ingersoll. And he had a perfect proof for atheism. He would go around with a watch, and he'd have a big crowd of, of people in the village square, and he would say, I, Robert Ingersoll, claim God does not exist. And the whole crowd would shudder. This terrible atheist, the village atheist. This is about 60 years ago. He says, I'm going to prove it. Wow. How did he prove it? He says, God, if you're up there and you exist, I beg you to strike me dead within 60 seconds. And the second hand turns around and everybody's hushed. And 61 seconds pass and puts down the watch and he says, see? Now, any self-respecting God would have struck me dead. How, how would he have allowed me to blaspheme and deny his existence? So, I prove God does not exist. I mean, that's the level of American philosophy. By the way, that's about as high as we get. 
this kind of popular village atheism and this kind of scientific proof that there is no prayer hearing God. But when you think about secular humanists, at first sight, their demand does seem reasonable. This is why they're so diabolical. If you have youngsters who have been given the typical pablum religious education, which means it's almost universal, and they go to a typical university, I don't care if it's called Catholic, Protestant, or, or secular, they're all the same now, with a few honorable exceptions, the minute a youngster will read secular humanism, if he reads Ingersoll, it sounds too bravado. And Ingersoll is just a smart aleck. But you read these secular humanists, you hear about Steve Allen, you say, hey, that's my kind of reason. Grandma may be credulous and superstitious and pr to pray to a prayer-hearing God, but I want to be right. And it does seem as if we humans ought to be treated like rational adults by God, and if God really exists, he better show us some sort of experimental proof. In fact, Bertrand Russell had a debate with Father Copleston, your that Jesuit professor in England who wrote about a 12-volume history of philosophy, they had a debate on BBC years ago. And one of the questions was, Bert, I don't think Copleston addressed him that way, but Professor Russell, suppose when you die, you meet the true God. What will you say? And Russell was not a bad. She says, well, I'll simply say, Lord, uh, uh, God, uh, you never gave us any hint that you existed, so don't blame me now. I mean, I was a scientist, a mathematician, a philosopher. I did all kinds of experimental work, but, and if you had existed, you would have, uh, uh, I mean, if you wanted us to know you existed, you could at least have shown up in a few experiments. So Russell thought he had a clean bill of health, whether he went to eternal nothingness or whether he just stood before the bar of God's justice, that he was perfectly clean epistemologically. This is an, uh, this is a, and Russell, by the way, is a brilliant writer, unfortunately. If only he had written like the wretched German. Nobody understands what they say anyhow. But Russell was witty and intelligent and urbane, and he must have dragged a couple of million Englishmen to the grave with him, and a couple of million Americans who go not, beyond logical positivism or pragmatism. But here's what I say, when now come along the Christians. Every so often, the most depressing part of my life is not the atheists, the pagans, the skeptics. I mean, they have always been around. It's the Catholics joining them. We have allegedly educated Jesuits and Dominicans who throw away their entire tradition and inheritance and insight and they say, hey, we have a Jesuit who are pragmatists. Boy, those guys are serious. We got so much to learn from these people. And they say, wasn't Jesus Christ himself a pragmatist? Didn't he sometimes refer to experimental proof? And the answer is yes, once in a while he did. For example, in one of his allocutions to the to the people around him, he says, if you don't believe my word, believe my works. He did miracles. In other words, to prove that he was truly, when he said, your sins are forgiven you, they said, ah, that's just talk. Well, he said, well, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, I say, 
get up from your handicapped uh, mat and walk. So he performed a living miracle in front of plenty of skeptics. And that convinced quite a few. So that's a kind of pragmatic proof. If I am God, I'm able to cure that lame person. I cure the lame person, therefore it verifies that I am God. Also, Thomas the skeptic, the apostle doubting Thomas, he said, I, I won't believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I put my hand in his side. Well, Jesus Christ said, Thomas, put your hand in my side. Feel the holes in my wrists and in my legs. And be not an unbeliever, but believe. So there are times when divinity, in a very gracious moment, allows certain humans a kind of experimental proof that divinity is real. But at other times, no. Those proofs are rare, the exceptions. Uh, my great teacher, von Hildebrand, noted in the small publication, Satan at Work, that Christ said before Pontius Pilate, he who is of the truth hears my voice. In other words, the very words of Christ, their authority, their uninventable quality, should be enough for us to say, Yea, Lord, thou art the Christ. We don't need his work. We hear reports of his work, but his very authority, his very qualitative uh, structure, and the way he speaks and what he says and the sublimity of his thought and his personality, that should be sufficient for our faith in him. Now in the Old Testament, though, there's a real pragmatic experiment. And William James, to his credit, liked this. William James is the, is the only tolerable pragmatist I've ever read. He's not very intellectually profound or consistent, but he had a lovable quality. He desperately tried to defend religion with his own gifts. He did not really succeed, but his attitude was good. He wanted God to exist. He was not quite equipped to understand the problem of the existence of God. But this is the Old Testament. There's the story of Elisha and the priests of Baal. And the humanists would love this. <clears throat> the story of Elisha simply said, I mean, Elisha is the true prophet. There are all kinds of false prophets in this village. And they are worshipping Baal, <clears throat> who's an idol, who's a devil. So Elisha said, wait a minute, I speak for the true God. And, and the king said, who are you? I mean, how, why should we believe you? So Elisha said, okay, let's have an experiment. Let your priests come out and, and offer a sacrifice. Let them have their, their holocaust on the altar. And let them pray and pray and pray and ask Baal to set the holocaust on fire. Right? The offering on fire. And he says, I'll pray to my God. Well, the Bible has a real great story. The priests put their animal on the altar, slaughtered, and they prayed, and they slashed their cheeks, and they went to a wild frenzy, and Elisha kept egging them on, saying, louder, louder, maybe Baal is, is deaf. So, and nothing happened. Elisha took his sacrifice and ordered that it be inundated with water, soaked with water, and with one prayer, instantly, it was set on fire. That's action. That's pragmatism. That is, that is uh, uh, secular humanism. Secular humanists would even believe that. But there's a catch here. 
In other words, that is a unique, it's one of the rarest things in the world when the truth of a statement seems to have been proved by Elisha and his contemptuous uh, denial that Baal was God and his, his paying off by his prayer, his sacrifice was set afire. But I want to note this. This is probably the key to my talk and it's somewhat subtle. There is an infinite distance difference between a miracle and the miracle will be Elisha's sacrifice catching on fire and an experimental proof such that the humanists won. Whenever a miracle happens, whether it's the lame man being raised from his, his invalid couch, the blind man being cured, the dead man being brought to life, whether it's the holocaust of, of Elisha being set afire, these miracles are gifts from God. They are never predictable, not always repeatable. They are given at God's pleasure and for his own reason, God deigns to let us become vividly aware of his presence. And many saints perform miracles. Miracles right now are happening at Lourdes. And they are from the grace of God descending from on high. They can never be the rule, the natural thing. This is the whole thing. In other words, what the secular humanists want is not simply one miracle. In fact, if they showed up, if, if, if the thing happened in front of their eyes, let's say in the case of Steve Allen, 30 people with cancer here, terminal cancer here, 30 people with terminal cancer there, the contemplative nuns are praying for a month, every one of these people gets cured. And nobody here gets cured, right? Well, man, that's kind of overwhelming evidence. But there are two things that happen. If that's the first and only time it happened, the secular humanist would say, well, it's a coincidence. Well, just one of those things, and they don't know how to explain it. Nature is much more mysterious than they know, but, but that, that doesn't prove the supernatural. But if every time the nuns pray, this side is cured and this side is not cured, you know what they would say? Well, that's nothing supernatural. That's nature. In other words, just as certain sores, every time you put penicillin on them, they're cured, well, there are certain cancers, every time certain words are spoken, they're cured. So you can't keep the secular humanists happy. They allege they want experimental proof of something. If it's only one time, it's a quirk. If it's all the time, it's nature. Whereas we say nature has its own laws. Every so often the author of nature can intersect nature and for a spiritual moral reason out of grace, can interfere with nature. But we don't prove God's existence by that. So this it may be a subtle point, but it's crucial. Now, I just want to end up with this. I think I have about ten minutes. Uh, I don't want to overrun the tape. Uh, the chief error of secular humanism is very easy to state. It's not always that obvious, but I want to state it now. In a few days, I'm going to be in London, I'm going to be talking on evolution, and it's a similar error right there. There is in logic a fallacy called begging the question. In other words, the very thing to be proved is the very thing assumed as true when you start all your arguments. And I want to apply that to this 
problem of the epistemology of secular humanism, they say that the only kind of knowledge that has any sort of standing in their court is that knowledge which is experimentally proved. And I've given you certain examples in real science. If I want to experimentally prove that asbestos causes lung cancer, it's quite simple. You get 50 people who work with asbestos and 50 people who never work with asbestos and find out who has more lung cancer. It's not all that hard. If I want to prove that there's a force of gravity, I can do certain experiments. If I want to prove there are cosmic rays, I can invent certain Geiger counters. So there's no problem. All real science has this ability to, to construct sensors such that they behave one way if the theory is true, a different way if the theory is not true. That's the heart of experimental verifiable science. But notice what these characters are saying. They're saying this is the only way knowledge or, sci or any kind of valid knowledge is attainable is by experimental proof. And they exclude faith, of course, but they exclude philosophical argument, insight into causality. Insight into the difference between the spirit and the body. Insight into the fact that certain deeds are horrible and abominable and others are not. So they, they exclude all of this in the name that only what is scientifically verifiable is true or meaningful. And you see what this problem is, dear friends? They assume that this statement is true. They assume that they know it's true, and it is true, that only scientific knowledge is worthwhile. But they don't prove that scientifically. Where is the scientific proof that only scientific proof is valid? They're begging the entire question. They simply, this is a philosophical statement. You're entitled to say philosophically. I'll have a very good discussion with you. If you say, Doc, the only thing that ever is valid is when you show me by experimentation this and this and this, I'll say, fine. Now you show me by experimentation that that statement of yours is true. They can't. What sort of experiment can you put together which would verify the epistemology of secular humanism? It doesn't exist. It is their dogma, their prejudice, their belief, if you will, their superstition. And that's the same, this is at the basis of their evolutionary nonsense. From the start, they are certain God does not exist. So, but you say, but that the world, there are, there are different forms, there are human beings, there's nature, there's beauty, there's harmony in nature. They say, oh, we admit all that, but... They will accept the most monstrosity odds. They'll agree that the odds against any random collision of matter, such that it forms a true molecule, never mind a whole organism, the odds are astronomically impossible. Something like 10 to the 178th power to 1 that a group of meaningless individual units can assemble into something meaningful but then they grin and say, but we beat the odds because we're here. Yeah, I know we're here. But who said, that, who said that chance is the only way to do it? The whole thing at issue was, is there a moral, intellectual origin of the universe? They simply ruled that out by prejudice, not by science. 
They rule it out by prejudice, by prejudging the issue. They say only science can answer this question. And then they are given the most impossible set of odds. They will accept that rather than admit through insight, and it may be through faith, that something above the earth accounts for the earth. This is this great begging of the question. It is the heart of the whole evolution debate. Not all of these accounts of this experiment or that experiment always result in a stalemate. It is the philosophical critique of this begging of the question which is crucial. I want to end with a few personal notes here. The head of the humanist movement in America for a long time is a professor of philosophy, of course. His name is Paul Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z. And I debated him for a half hour on television about 20 years ago, or 15 years ago. The Humanist Manifesto is absolutely arrogant, and the Humanist Movement is arrogant. So I expected Paul Kurtz to be a real arrogant SOB, and it turned out he was a kind of wimp. It turned out he was a kind of timid person, and... He was pitiable. I I ended up the debate feeling sad for him because this man, his whole point was, we have only a few years on earth. We can't be bothered. We have neither time nor talent nor energy nor possibility of knowing anything. So let's have good food and air conditioning and art and a few things and let's forget morality. Let's forget death. Let's forget immortality. Uh, let us have this pitiful existence between the womb and the tomb. So I want to end up with a couple of quotes. I do not have the time to do justice to this, but it's quite interesting how wretched this movement is from an ethical point of view. It gets its seeming strength from its pseudoscience, which is really philosophy, but when you read its implications, you realize how They are lost sheep. The humanists are people who are totally timid. They have the principle of death surrounding them. They want a little air conditioning in this desert pilgrimage of life which begins in nothingness and ends in nothingness. And it is part of Christian charity to awaken them. And above all, their young victims to show them what it means to live in the sight of God in this heroic adventure where good and evil are the axis of the universe, where one accepts one's cross as one walks through time. As far as we know, the total personality is a function of the biological organism transacting in a a social and cultural context. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. We haven't summoned the ghost forth from it. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics stems from human need and interest. Happiness and the creative realization of human needs and desires, individually and in shared enjoyment, are continuous themes of humanism. We strive for the good life Here and now. And if it means abortion, divorce, and so on, fine. So long as it gives us the good life here and now. Although science 
No. In the area of sexuality, which is where the action is, we believe that intolerant attitudes often cultivated by orthodox religions and puritanical cultures unduly repress sexual conduct. The right to birth control, abortion, and divorce should be recognized. See, this is their wonderful thing. And finally, this is their worldview, which they think is the wave of the future, and I think is the principle of death. They want a full range of civil liberties, and this includes freedom of speech and the press, political democracy, the legal right of opposition to governmental politics, fair judicial process, religious liberty, freedom of association. It also includes a recognition of an individual's right to die with dignity, euthanasia, and the right to suicide. So this is the sad, sad worldview of this, of this humanist manifesto. It has this bravado of being the, the, the program for the future, of organizing people of all goodwill, but it is this chilling terrorist uh, despair of a world which has no light and no life and no truth. Once again, let us as Catholics, let us as believers in Christ and the transcendent God, let us pray for these people and let us rescue the hapless victims from this despairing philosophy. It is probably this philosophy of despair which accounts for most alcoholism and drug abuse. People think the whole world is some absurdity coughed up by an irrational evolutionary force there's no meaning before the grave, before the cradle, and after the grave. So we eat, drink, be merry, shoot drugs, and get AIDS. Because tomorrow or today we die. Thank you. Did I go over? I didn't go over. human secularism has affected the church and how they think, especially in perhaps liberation theology, where we're supposed to have heaven here on earth. Do you agree with that? Uh, that's a quite good observation. Liberation theology is absolutely this worldly centered. They think that the Marxists are in the, in the vanguard of true humanism, and these unfortunate people, they said the people don't want to hear about heaven and all that, they want sewer systems and so on. And they're wrong on two accounts. First of all, not by bread alone does man live. Secondly, when the Catholic faith is really proclaimed, they get better sewer systems than when the Marxists are around. I mean, they, they should have learned that by now. We have better sewage than the Marxist system. But that's quite a good comment on that. Is there any evidence that the um, humanists will link up with all the other enemies of the church, the Masons, the other people that are trying to bring the church down and try and bring about the new age or the new world government and all that. You know, that would be a... Uh, is there any evidence about the, they say, the link-up? I am not a journalist. I read all kinds of, of accounts, whether articles or books, uh, about Freemasonry and, and Gnostic societies, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. 
Now, I could never trace links. I could never say A, really, and B and C in different countries met together in Geneva and so on. But I can say this. The spirit of secular humanism is the identical spirit of all these do-gooders who want to save the world from religion and, and popery and, and the supernatural and all that. They want an orderly, rational society in which for 60 years on earth we work together and you're entitled to say anything you want about God or Jehovah or snakes or whatever, but they don't want that to have any impact. They want good sanitation, good food, uh, good art, good sex, and the whole bit. So there definitely is that link, and I await serious journalistic endeavors to prove connections. But I got my public speaking start 25 years ago on the matter of sex education. I never knew the name, the word sex. I'd be tired of it, but I am by now. And in America, we had this group called the John Birch Society, which was quite a good group. It got smeared by all sorts of uh, modernist uh, liberals. But the Birch Society sponsored my lectures. I never joined them, but for two weeks, I went around 14 states. And actually, it was several different tours. But I had 14 states on sex ed. And the Birches wanted me to stress that this was a communist plot that sex ed was a communist plot, and at first of all, I didn't believe it. The communists, no doubt, would profit from the demoralization of youth. But secondly, even if you told people X is a communist plot, if they like X, they'll say, well, long live the communists. So I used to try and deal with the intrinsic problem of this tasteless uh, pagan uh, uh, obsession with sex. So, so my whole point is that I have no doubt that there are shadow churches, shadow movements, always trying to infiltrate, sound the church. The church is the one enemy of the devil in the world. Everything else is up for sale. Not so Jesus Christ. So I have no doubt that if the devil has any, if he's as smart as he's supposed to be, his main strategy is to get all sorts of shadow organizations infiltrating the church. But I don't think, I mean, it's good to be aware of this and to pray against these supernatural forces. But I claim our mission is to show that the thing is false. Never mind that they're infiltrating us, but what they are infiltrating us with is not truth, it's falsity. We have to awaken people from a naivete a credulity which uh, prevents any effective action. Uh, uh, this whole question, therefore, of uh, Masonic movement, I think it's, it's quite important. But I'd much rather people, instead of studying that A influence B and B influence C and, and C is now the prime minister of education or something like that, I'd much rather people took the issue and say, is it true or not? Is it true that the only knowledge we have is scientific knowledge? But that would be it. But we need both. Would you say that the secular humanists now are all coloured, well not all coloured, but taken on the colour of green? Yeah, that's a good question. That certainly, uh, I live on four and a half acres in America and I love trees. That's why I wish all newspapers would stop publishing. I think we'd be better off and we'd have acres of trees left. And it no doubt many people in the environmentalist movement, that is their 
God. That is their ideology. They believe in nothing else but oxygen. And they believe in nothing else but nature. Well, I mean, they could do worse. But I'm always suspicious of these. This is what you mean really by idolatry. It's a man-made God. It's a man-made slice of reality which is elevated to an absolute. And I say we as Christians have a far greater interest in nurturing the earth, our beautiful home, this mysterious nature which gives us our food and fiber and air. And in fact, when Christian civilization prospers, nature is much more lovingly uh, uh, caressed than when we have this vicious, greedy uh, uh, system that we have today in which we rape nature. So, so f- I don't deny certain concerns of environmentalists, but I claim they usually are isolated, absolute, and secondly, we Christians have a far better principle in which we fight for decent treatment of nature and animals and everything else. So, we'll sign off and... Uh, Anyone who picks up F, I was told by a station in Sheffield, it's, uh, I don't know the name of the station, but it's 104.2 FM. They're going to call me up 7.30 tomorrow morning for a little radio interview, a live interview about my talk tomorrow night, which is going to be on the pro-life movement. And uh, I'm going to talk about the rescue movement in my lecture. And this man never heard of Joan Andrews, by the way the guy who's interviewed me, so it might be an interesting interview if you can pick it up. Is there a possibility that uh, secular humanism itself will soon be presented as a religion? Well, you know, if some uh, Catholic theologians have their way, yes, but uh, just note this, today is Ascension Thursday, I hope everybody here went to church, We have in America a horrible theologian from Notre Dame University, supposedly one of the great universities in America. His name is Richard McBride. He's chairman of the theology department. He wrote a book, What Do We Really Believe? And one of his statements was this. I went to the Holy Land and the guide showed me the rock from which it is said that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven He said, I had to hold my sides to keep from bursting out in laughter at this superstition. So there's a man, head of our theology department in Notre Dame, who thinks that the very notion that Jesus Christ went to the Father in eternity is absurd. And he will reinterpret the Bible in a secularistic, humanistic way. So that you can, if you wonder why we're losing the faith, that's one of the reasons. But secondly... That's only our problem within the church. What we need is a hangman's noose for such theologians. But uh, Frank is quite right. Uh, uh, There is almost no faith anywhere in Western society except in nature religion. We have all this witchcraft and, and everything else. Now, witchcraft is not exactly the same as secular humanism. In fact, the secular humanists hate witchcraft as much as they hate Christ. They think it's just one more version. Nevertheless, there is this kind of sentimentality. Let snake charmers and witchcrafts and Jesus Christ people and Jews and Muslims, let them all say whatever they want. But for heaven's sake, let's work together in democracy and in hygiene 
and in education and all that. And that may be, if you know this marvelous book, Lord of the World, by Robert Hugh Benson, uh, an Englishman, that book is getting new vogue now. Uh, his whole prediction, it was like a fictional prediction, was precisely the weary world, tired of these little religious parochial fights, will settle upon a world leader who will promise them peace and prosperity at least for the 60 years of their life. And if, and if, and if you get too painful, we'll promise you a quick lethal injection and we'll even cremate you at government expense. So in that sense, yes.